Good evening, everyone. I'm Ryan O'Grady. I work here in the Sights and Sounds Department at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. We're happy to have all of you here tonight. A quick plug for the library itself. For our list of upcoming programs, please check out the current version of the Compass. There are copies back there. There's also copies of pages of what's coming up. Um, of note, we have Chris Matthews, host of MSNBC's Hardball, coming to speak to the library on Thursday, March 8th. I'll be there that night. I encourage any of you who can make it, please come out. But tonight, main attraction, Robert Canigal. He is the author of six previous books. He has been the recipient of numerous awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship and the Grady Stack Award for Science Writing. His book, The Man Who Knew Infinity, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. His work has appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times Magazine, the New York Times Book Review, Harvard Magazine, and Psychology Today. Robert Cangle's new book, On an Irish Island, deftly traces the history of the great Blasket Island, which lies to the southwest of Ireland, and chronicles how in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a handful of young and world-curious scholars and writers combined intellects with some of the local island inhabitants, both parties working together to ultimately create what George Thompson calls the Blasket Library. And who wouldn't want to explore, at least in their mind's eye, a world untouched by modern society, a world that by some accounts remained in the clutches of the Dark Ages? Robert Cannigal's book takes you on this journey to the Blasket Island, a place which at the peak of its population only held uh, 150 inhabitants, more or less. One quote that I think accurately sums up this journey is again from George Thompson when he wrote, I went to the Blasket Island in order to learn the language, but when I got there, I found something even more significant and attractive, the people who spoke it. Well, you may have come here tonight to hear Robert Cannigal speak about his book, but you may find yourself wanting to buy a copy of the book for yourself, which in that case, copies are available in the back. Uh, Ivy Bookshop is selling there will be a book signing at the end as well. So right now, please join me in welcoming Robert Canigal, not only to the Pratt, but also back to Baltimore as he has just moved back here as a retired professor from science writing at MIT. Welcome, Robert. This, to me, feels like um, coming back here feels like a dual celebration of place. Uh, the the book itself is about a place that's sort of the central, uh, it's, it's a celebration of an island, and we'll talk about this island. But coming here tonight feels, it's coming back to Baltimore. And I, most of my young adulthood was spent in Baltimore. I, li I first moved here in 1966. And my um, my whole young adulthood, my early writing life is intermixed in Baltimore. Um, some of my, the first articles that I did, I researched here in the Pratt Library or in the, what's now called the Village Learning Place, but was the old St. Paul Street branch in Charles Village of the Pratt. Uh, I would go up to the bulletin boards there and, you know, look at what's going on, what's interesting, and suggest it to, um, to editors. And that was, that was really the beginning of a 40-year life as a writer. Which, so I'll always associate that very happily with the Pratt particularly. 
uh, and Baltimore in general. Um, I, for about 12 years, I went up to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I was a professor uh, of science writing. And just recently, in August, uh, we came back, and uh, we're living in Charles Village. What we haven't done <clears throat> is come back and renewed our library card. Um, but I'm going to do that tonight if the library is still open. Um, I feel kind of foolish that way. I had a library card all the time I was here and used it constantly. Let me tell you about uh, what this book is about. Um, it's about an island. I think you heard it. They, they use the, the the name in introducing the the, um, the story. It's not the the name Blasket is not in the title of the book, because maybe to your ear as well as to mine, it's not a euphonious name. It doesn't sound beautiful, and it sounds too much like basket. And it, it doesn't it, it doesn't flow off the lips easily. And my editor at one point said, We're not going to include that in the in the title of the subtitle. And I didn't give her a hard time. I agreed. So this is a book without a subtitle, which in nonfiction these days is a little in, a little unusual. Um, so the place is is called the Great Blasket. The time is a period from about nineteen oh five to nineteen fifty or nineteen fifty-three. The characters are really in in two groups. Um, there are the islanders, and there are the visitors to the island. And I'll in a few minutes I'll explain why I'm bothering to make this distinction at all. The book is not called an Irish island. It's not a history of the island. It's called on an Irish island for a specific reason to give the sense that something happened here. Something happened on the island. Um, and it happened in this kind of magic period in the early years of the 20th century. This is a book about a collision of cultures between a traditional society, by which we mean um, uh, like, uh, like ancient village societies or peasant societies before the outside of cities, places that are very different from Baltimore and London and New York. Uh, what happens when a traditional society has people coming from the outside, from places like Paris and London and so on? So a little bit about the island itself. It never had more than about 200 people, uh, all of them tucked into uh, stone houses that were that clung to the side of this cliff. Uh, a cliff rose up behind the village that rose to about a thousand feet. Uh, the island was about three miles across Blasket Sound from the mainland in the far west of Ireland. Most of the people who lived there were illiterate in both English and Irish. They lived by farming and fishing. Um, they had been on the island only for a couple of, couple of hundred years. They had moved from the mainland long before, many of them around the time of the famine and before. There were no shops, no churches, no electricity, no plumbing, no doctors, no nothing except a vibrant village life. This life was a funny combination of 
elements that are attractive to us and off-putting. It was very it was a very dangerous life. People fell off the cliffs. People drowned out on the boats that they went fishing in. And the, the stories and because they didn't have Oh. Okay. Um, because they didn't, they didn't, um, where was I going with that? Who knows? <laughs> no big loss. It was dangerous. That's it, dangerous. Um, and because the, um, there were no doctors also, people kind of died fairly routinely when they weren't able to get medical attention. It was not easy to get over to the mainland. They, they used these rather primitive canvas canoes that got them across the three miles to the mainland, got them across when the weather was good. When the weather was even a little bit rocky or storm-ridden, you couldn't get across, and sometimes that was for weeks at a time. So sometimes they were marooned on this island. It was a hard life. Um, set against that, though, is what everybody noticed, what all these villagers noticed, what all the visitors noticed, which is that it was a very vibrant life. It was an oral culture. People talk to one another, which sometimes I wonder, maybe in modern life, people have forgotten how to do. People talk to one another, and they dance. There were, there were, there were dances at uh, one of the uh, local houses. There were dances at the far edge of the island. Um, there was singing, there was music, there was dance, and there was this vibrant oral culture, and everybody... All the villages, all the visitors who came to the island noted this, this strange doubleness, this two-ness of an impossibly hard life with something that was immensely attractive to them. The visitors to the island came primarily to hear spoken Irish. The, what I may or may not have said was that the island was Gaelic-speaking. We call it Gaelic-speaking. Uh, people there today call it simply Irish. Um, and it was largely untainted by English. There were, and that gets a little bit complicated, but for the most part, it was untainted by, by English. And the larger historical currents in Ireland at this time, the beginning of the 20th century, were toward a return and a reappreciation for the Irish language. Remember, Ireland was not Ireland. I mean, from the standpoint of any self-respecting Irish person, it certainly was. But at the time, it belonged to England. It belonged to the United Kingdom. In 1893, the Gaelic League had been formed, which for the next two decades was basically champion, a re, championing a revival of the Irish language and Irish culture. A language that had once been spoken by millions of people all over Ireland had been pushed and pushed and pushed to the west into smaller and smaller enclaves of Irish Irish speakers. So that, you know, if you, if you, left this the island or the area immediately surrounded surrounding it what you heard was english it might be it might have a thick irish accent but it was english and it was only when you moved as far west as you could go to to here to the area that we're talking about that you really heard pure spoken irish 
the West, the, sometimes the, the West of Ireland uh, appears in my book and elsewhere with a capital W to represent what this area represented to the Irish at the time. Uh, according to one scholar, the West was the authentic Ireland, a materialization of an unsullied primordial past. The West was part of a creation myth of a new Ireland aborning, aborning. To find it, you headed West. Let me read to you, I'll be reading to you all told about half a dozen sections from the, the book. Um, I want to take you into the island right now. This is probably the longest section. The others will be shorter. Uh, but J.M. Singh and subsequent, Singh is one of the, the playwright, J.M. Singh we'll talk about in a minute, uh, was one of the earliest visitors to the island. When Singh, but Singh and subsequent visitors saw little by way of historical remnant. What struck them as they trudged up the zigzag path from the break in the rocks that served as pier was bustling life. Children, women, and men setting out in the boats, hunting rabbits, cooking, cutting peat, tending to animals, talking a stream of Irish among themselves. After three miles of open water in a little boat, the visitor was abruptly there in a stone village dug into the side of a hill that shot up from the sea's edge, the mainland now seeming inconsiderable and remote. The island itself was three miles long and half a mile wide, shaped like an ineptly cut arrowhead aimed southwest. On its northeast, on its northeast flank, farthest from the point where it might be affixed to the arrow shaft, stood the village itself with its 28 houses. That, anyway, is the figure normally given. The roofless ruins today, plated with outbuildings and low stone walls, don't make for easy counting. But the houses were mere backdrop for the animal strivings of 150 humans, as well as the donkeys, chickens, and sheep that were as much a part of village life. Typically of one or two rooms, the houses were tied together by interlaced paths gradually worn into or cut into the sloping ground. From their chimneys issued smoke from fires built from peat gathered on the backside of the island, dried in little stone structures there, then borne across the island on the backs of donkeys laden with wicker panniers. There were no trees, none. There was plenty of li living green, but it was all pasturage over wide stretches of the island and bog and a few low bushes. It was a place of sheer rock faces, eroding gullies, sharp projections into the sea, seabirds in flight hundreds of feet below, a place of stark contrasts and extraordinary beauty. Vistas could change within a few steps. There was no disguise, no shelter, no privacy granted by cops or wood, only by the spatial irregularities of the island, where the curve of a hill or the descent into a crevasse might abruptly lose you to another site. Several peaks shot up from the landmass. The one to which the village clung rose to more than 700 feet. Along the back of the island, you'd encounter two more, reaching higher yet to almost a 1,000 feet. 
A few paths, more or less level, emerged from the village and wrapped around the hill. Depart from these thin ribbons of horizontality, and you could imagine rolling or sliding down the sheer slope. Yet however steep, it was a plump pillow of green compared with the cliffs by which the island finally dropped away to the sea. Abruptly, the earth was gone, and there were only the rocks and crashing surf a hundred or two hundred feet below. Everywhere along the island's circumference, mouthfuls of land chomped out by some great sea monster, each its own gnarled universe of rocks, softened just a bit with growths of sea pink or other vegetation. Each was alive in the minds of the, villi- of the islanders with its own name, Little Cliff Cove on the long north face of the island, or Copper Beach a little to the west, where a wrecked ship had once deposited a load of copper bolts or Point of the Cross on the south. There were scores of them, no hundred yards of shoreline failing to get its own name and coloration in the island's collective mind. In this rhythm of cove and point, there was one exception. Not the village itself, which dropped to the sea much as the rest of the island did, to the wave-lapped inlet where the navogs, which were the little canvas canoes, were brought ashore. Rather, it was north of the village and visible from its heights, a cove where the cliffs fell not into the sea, but into a soft swath of fine white sand 300 yards across. Antravan, the islands called it, the white strand. It was close to the village, but not quite of it, just below the gentler slope of land where most of the island's few crops were grown. A stretch of shore that was sweeter, more forgiving, where you didn't need to watch your fit- fitting, your footing, excuse me, as you did everywhere else on the island. Here, driftwood washed ashore, seals beached, children ran barefoot in the wet sand. So that was the island, and beginning around 1905, visitors, who we're going to talk about in a minute, came to the island. And the visitors changed things. As a result of their coming, something happened to the island, something happened to the islanders, and something happened to them. Now, it'd be sometimes nonfiction writers who are, have settled on a topic get a little carried away and say that their subject changed the world. It's always that they, it changed the world. It didn't change the world here, but something important and notable happened. Out of this little two-by-nothing little island, came a literary outpouring that was so out of proportion to the size of the island, it's, it's hard to believe. We think of you know, Paris or Greenwich Village as being the seat of literature and culture. And yet, if we did a little mathematical exercise and compared the number of books coming out of the Great Blasket per population, it would probably be higher here than it would be on the left bank of Paris. What happened is this, the, the villagers, the visitors came to the island, they fell in love with the island, they fell in love with the people there, and they um, encouraged the native fishermen who they met there to tell their stories. They did, writing in Irish, this is, was not easy, when we'll get to that, but they encouraged the local fishermen to tell their stories. And they, they wrote their stories in Irish, which were later translated into other languages. The first was a book called The Islandman by Tommaso Crittin. 
Then came one called 20 Years of Growing by Maurice O'Sullivan. Then one called Peg by Peg Sears. All of them were later translated into English and other languages. And then came, in the wake of these very successful books, came memoirs, collections of letters, uh, history, linguistics, folklore, all billowing up from this tiny sea-bound community that was basically cut off from the 20th century. George Thompson, who you're going to hear about shortly, was one of the visitors who came to the island. He said, if we put them all together, side by side, George Thompson said years later, we have a little library of 15 or 16 volumes, the Blasket Library. And this is something unique. There's no such collection in any other language. A collective portrait of a pre-capitalist village community made by the villages themselves at the very moment of transition from speech to writing. Several of these books I go on achieved international renown. Many remain in print. One was required reading in the Irish national school system for three decades. Together, they represent a poor Irish-speaking peasantry, their hard lives close and cooperative, but rich with story, song, and dance, cut off from the clamor of modern life, and inevitably reflecting back at us our own soft, technology-thick lives. Now, maybe you're wondering what I think you should be wondering, which is what I was wondering and what everybody who's thought about this question wondered at some point. If these people were illiterate peasants, where did these books come from? So this was a, a, a village largely but not completely populated by illiterates. How did my, how did our visitors get the um, islanders to tell their stories? And how did they get them published? What accounted for these stories being so successful? That's part of this rather unlikely story that I, that I tell here. In the first case, Tommaso Critton uh, had learned to write and read at the age of 40, I should say, albeit with rather bizarre spellings and peculiarities of his language. Uh, in another instance, the woman's son, she didn't know how to read or write, but her son did, and she would speak. And he, she was renowned as one of the village's best storytellers. And he would record her stories. He would record her autobiography and write it down. Later, it would be edited. Now, sometimes editors try to clean up these stories. Clean up has the wrong uh, sense. We, we mean sometimes the wrong thing with clean up. Um, here, I'm talking about making it editorially acceptable to, to readers. Um, one of the characters in my story is named uh, uh, Patrick Segru, other no otherwise known as Anchauk, which means the hawk in, um, in Irish, which was a kind of nom de guerre. He was active in the, in the revolution against the, the English. He so hated the English language that years later when he was, uh, he had to sign his name in English to achieve uh, to get an award offered by the Irish government, the fact that he was willing to sign his name in English itself made the newspapers. Depending on who you wanted to talk to, this Anshak was either the villain of the piece because he distorted, you could say, you could argue some of the initial writings of the islanders, or you could say that he's the hero and that he managed to get them into print in the first place. This may be 
the only book of this kind that you could think of where editorial decisions become part of the fabric of the story and debates about whether he edited the books right. All told, this might add up to a kind of impossible story that if you were writing a headline for it would read, illiterate islanders write books and get them published. So this is a miracle enough, I'd say, getting these books published, pretty interesting. While it's part of the story, though, it's not the, the whole story. I decided early on that I was not going to try to retell the story of the islanders. Um, there's plenty about the islanders and their lives in this book and how hard it was, how hard they were, what they did, how they supported themselves, what happened when a ship would sink off the coast of the island and how they would retrieve some of the valuables that came off the, the sinking ship and so on. But my story is not fundamentally about their lives. It's about the visitors who came to the island for a simple reason that the stories, and I hope the Pratt has these books, the stories that the islanders themselves told tell it far, far better than I could. Um, when Thomas O'Critton tells about his life growing up on the island, it's a pretty good story, as is Maurice O'Sullivan's story. Um, there are a whole bunch of these stories. I think mine, my favorite is probably 20 Years of Growing, which is just a rollicking good time. People have questioned it that it always seems that the sun is shining in his young life when in fact the sun is never shining on this island it seems for long long periods of time anyway so my book is a little different uh, there there is a book uh, called hungry for home which is a good book about how the islanders left um, the blaskets and came to america it's an em emigration story my story is about the visitors and what it was like to pick up from places like Paris and London to leave your dusty archive there, your, your room surround, surrounded by books like this, um, seminar rooms, libraries, the intellectual life of Paris and London and Oslo, and wend your way across the Irish Sea and across Ireland and plant your yourself in this distant place that is so cut off from modern life. What was it like to exchange the modern world for what has variously been called, with some exaggeration, but not entirely, a Neolithic civilization? What was it like to meet people who had none of the benefits of modern life, endured um, none of the costs, though, either of modern civilization, who had a rich, vital, vibrant life? What did this clash of cultures do to them, the visitors? And running all through this book like a, a quiet stream that's like off to the side and you can't quite hear, but maybe you can and I hope you can, is just out of earshot is what does the experience of these visitors to this island mean for us, for us and how we live? What have we gained from modern life and what have we lost? With that transition, um, let me give you a, a brief rundown of the visitors that I'm writing about and some of their experiences on the island. Most of them are not names familiar to you. 
Uh, one of them is, or maybe, J.M. Singh, the, the playwright, uh, wrote a wonderful play called Playboy of the Western World, with Playboy being used in a very different way than it is in our society as a, a hoaxer or a trickster. Um, Singh had uh, gone to the Aran Islands, and uh, now he was in the Blaskets to hear the, dial, the local dialect, which is different from up in Connemara, and to hear stories that might possibly enrich his, his plays. So he went there to absorb local stories. On the island, on the Blasket, he met a young woman who some biographers of Singh have claimed is the prototype or the model for a tremendously vital, inimitable character from his uh, play, the Playboy of the Western World, a woman named Pegeen Mike. Um, so he was the first of this series of, vi of visitors to go to the island. Carl Marstrander from Oslo was enlisted as part of a, a kind of Scandinavian fascination with the Irish roots of uh, the, Viking, the Viking past. He was supposed to, um, basically his advisor at the University of Oslo told him, go to the Blaskets and learn modern Irish. You've been learning old Irish in your books, but we want you to, we want you to learn modern Irish. Um, he goes there, he goes to the Blaskets, and he meets uh, Tommaso Critton, um, a lifelong fisherman who would, would end up writing the first book in the Blasket um, library. Basically, he used Tomas as a research assistant. When he wanted to know the name of a uh, of an object that he saw, he would um, he would ask him. And along the way, was basically taking lessons in Irish for four or six or eight hours a day. Robin Flower, who came from London, an almost obsessive bibliophile, scratch almost. He was an obsessive bibliophile who worked at the manuscripts department of the British Museum. Um, and there were a whole bunch of old Irish manuscripts at the British Museum. And basically he was said, you've got to learn old Irish. And he took a course in Dublin at the School of Irish Learning uh, in Dublin. And who was he learning from? He was learning from Marstrander, who had just come back from the, the Blaskets. And young Robin Flower was hearing these war stories of this island at the edge of the civilized world that where Marstrand had had all these interesting experiences, met all these interesting people, was finding a world that was completely unlike anything he'd ever seen. And Robin Flower, too, was completely taken by this world. And pretty soon, he was going off to the Blasket, too. First, he went by himself. Then he went with himself and his wife. And then in subsequent years, for 25 or 30 years, he came with himself and his wife and his children, one after the other. Sometimes on vacation, sometimes recording with these very primitive, remember cassette tapes? This was long before cassette tapes. He used something called an Ediphone, which is E-D-I as in Edison. It was first patented by Thomas Edison. He used a wax cylinder, and he used that for recording uh, folklore and folk songs on the island. Brian Kelly, who is a graduate of Trinity College, Cambridge, a little bit of a ne'er-do-well, um, couldn't really hold a job, uh, but he was taken with the Irish language. And at the instigation of his teacher in Limerick, 
who basically said, look, if you really want to learn the language, head off to the Blasket. And that's what he did. Um, and he was one of those also who uh, prevailed on Tommaso Critton to really go beyond the little tidbit accounts that he was writing and say, maybe actually tell your story, tell you, record your autobiography. And he furnished the paper to do it, along with tobacco and occasional money. Um, Marie-Louise Stostedt, who is a French woman of Swedish descent, a student of languages at the Sorbonne, uh, who loved all languages, but she was steered toward the Celtic languages by her advisor. She goes there, she's uh, to the Blasket, and Dun Dunquin is the village on the mainland that faces the Blasket, so they're often intertwined. She goes there, she starts palling around with a local guy who's a real, um, well, he loved women. He loved all women. Um, and she starts palling around with him, and whether they had an affair or not is not 100% sure, but what is sure is that the guy fell in love with her, and they would go off to these rocky places on the mainland and just stare out to sea, stare out to the to the Blaskets. Um, and the final among the key figures that I'm writing about is a man named George Thompson, who ended up becoming a classicist. That is, he studied ancient Greece, and he was a translator of Aeschylus, and he was fascinated by Homer. Uh, he couldn't study uh, the Celtic. He, there was no field uh, Celtic studies at the time he enrolled at Cambridge, so he couldn't study that. He studied the classics. But by going to the Blaskets beginning in 1923, he found a way to... to he saw in the island population that he was meeting something that was kind of analogous to the Greek peasants who initially were, the Greek tribes who were initially telling the stories that became what we think of the Odyssey and the Iliad. So he made connections between what he saw on the island and his studies of the classics. On the island, he fell in love with an Irish, with a, an island girl. Um, who, with whom he had some kind of relationship for about seven years until she emigrated from the Blaskets and went to America. And he also befriended an, an island man named Tomaso, um, Maurice O'Sullivan, who wrote, um, who he encouraged to write uh, 20 years of growing. The two men became, as different as they might seem, became fast friends, the closest friends that either of them had in their entire lives. A fisherman and an esteemed classicist who kept in touch their entire lives. So it's their stories around which I built this book. For, in a sense, I came to realize that their stories were our stories in the sense that the world in which they came, the, the world that they came from is a world not that different from our own. I begin the book uh, not on the island, not with the villages, but this way on page one. Actually, the way they do it, it's called page three. So he left for the Blasket in 1923. 1923 was barely yesterday, a lot like today. People lived in suburbs and commuted to work. They traveled by tram and subway. Excuse me. They drove automobiles. They went to the movies. 
subscribed to magazines, looked up in the sky to see airplanes, vaccines, flush toilets, bestseller lists, billboards, cameras, and power lines were part of their lives. Their memories were fresh with visions of a war that killed with industrial efficiency. Picasso, Stravinsky, and Virginia Woolf had taught them to see through fractured lenses. Telegrams, telephones, newsreels, and radios had shrunk the world. If you were part of the great and growing middle class and lived in a place like Chicago or Berlin, London or New York, life could be pretty fast. You had your, amb- your ambitions, you wanted more, you lived a busy life. That was the world that George Thompson came out of and really all of these visitors to the island. One not that different from our own. If you, if you leave aside the details and blur the, techno- the particular bio- the technologies a bit, it's a world that most of us inhabit too. It's a world of modernity. It's a high-tech, high-speed, connected world. One of the visitors I haven't told you about was named George Chambers. He ran a factory in London and was something of a poet as well. He arrived on the island in 1931. He wasn't specifically going to the island. He was, the, the Great Blasket is called the Great Blasket because it's the largest of a group of seven islands that are collectively called the, the Blaskets. And the other six are called the Lesser Blaskets. And one of them was called the Tiracht. And on the Tiracht was located a lighthouse that for reasons that still escape me, I wish I found out I didn't, George Chambers wanted to see. And if he wanted to see it, he first had to come to the, the Great Blasket. Late that first, this is the story of George Chambers. Late that first afternoon, hiking up the hill behind the village, he met two girls coming down the other way with a pannier-laden donkey bearing turf. And he writes, they wore neither shoes nor stockings and were clothed in little more than rags, but two more beautiful girls I have seldom seen, and they were as merry and unaffected with me as though I had been an elder brother. The end of his account. One of them was named Leash. Based on the totality of later events, it seems hard to credit any conclusion, but that however unlikely or outlandish it might seem, George Chambers, at the age of 58, fell in love with her on the spot or in the days that followed. Was it chance or divinely planned, he'd write in a poem to her published years later, that my bleak heart should flower once more? The, the two of them maintained a correspondence that endured for more than a quarter century. It was a beautiful relationship. They sometimes had the equivalent of really lover's spats when her awkward English uh, didn't quite compute and she left the wrong impression with him. Um, but it was, it was a lovely relationship and it had all the qualities of a love affair, even if it wasn't. She ended up marrying an island man a couple of years after he came for the first time. Um, but the, the warmth, the feeling that she describes in her, about George Chambers is really kind of heartwarming. She says at one point, um, oh, I, I wish you had, uh, what if, um, you were 20 years younger when you had come and what would have happened then? We can only imagine something like that. 
Chambers was the exception. Chambers was 58 when he came to the island and met Leash, who was 30 years younger than he was. Singh was 34. George Thompson was 20. And all the other people that I write about were in their 20s. Of Robin, Robin Flower, one of the people that I mentioned to you, of Robin Flower, a friend of his wrote, this place is a dream of his youth. And that's what it was for them in general, uh, which sounds suspiciously like nostalgia. You're an old guy. You're looking back to the scenes of your youth. Um, and the fact is the island did, for the most part, touch them when they, when they were young. And so the question is, I think it was raised with me, and it might be raised with you, does that take something away? In other words, are their impressions of the island somehow suspect? Suspect. And I address this in the book myself. I write toward the end, are we required, are we required to judge as distorted or naive all that these superbly educated men and women experienced on those windy heights above the sea? Must we dismiss it on the simple, if undeniable, grounds that their place in the island world that their place in the island world was temporary and artificial, their immersion incomplete, their insight skewed? Today they would all be termed privilege. Each was spared the island's grimmest truths, was buffered from the village's social pressures, could come and go as he or she pleased. What George and Mary Louise and Marstrander lived was not what the islanders lived. An Australian scholar, Irene Lukiti, says Singh's sympathetic picture of the Blaskets, quote, recognizes neither the realities of poverty nor the ordinary complications of island life. Close quote. Singh and the others may have hauled nets, collected turf on the hills behind the village, rowed until their muscles burned, but unlike the islanders, they weren't consigned forever to labor and hardship. Their livelihoods didn't depend on it. Their prospects ranged beyond the sea-ruffled edge of the island. They were on vacation, or they were on leave, or they were doing research, or they were working on their Irish. Usually it was summer and the sun shone. Come winter, they were back in the city. With no matter what clarity, sing, Thompson and the others could see the harshness of island life. They nonetheless enjoyed the mental leisure, the freedom from exigency to see it worn by softer light. Or so, voicing this objection speaks maturity. And in the book, maturity gets a capital M to represent kind of the concept of maturity, the force of maturity. Or so, voicing this objection speaks maturity, the grown-up part of us that insists on being hard-headedly realistic. But of course, that was not the part of them the Blaskets claimed, because for them, the Blaskets were their youths, their land of the young. For the longest time, the title of this book was different. It was called The Land of the Young. Some of you especially, if you go down to the, uh, the Inner Harbor, there's a, uh, an Irish restaurant called Tirnanag, and that means land of the young in Irish. Um, for anybody who's got even like a little hint of an Irish heritage, you probably know what land of the young uh, refers to. Um, very early in the book, the last thing I want to read 
is the introduction to the reader of this concept. Robin Flower had been at the museum for four years when, in August 1910, age 28, he arrived in the Blaskets. He wrote with characteristic likeness from the House of the King. The King is the sort of the informal, it's not really a king, it's kind of an informal leader of the community. Uh, he wrote from the House of the King, I am safe here in the royal palace, which consists of a fair-sized cabin with an earthen floor and two small rooms built onto it to accommodate visitors. He briefly described the village, the houses thrown down anywhere where they can find a bit of reasonably level ground, the navogs, the little canoes, and their curiously stunted oar blades. He was finally learning to row them, he wrote, after earlier being unable to synchronize with the man behind, them, behind him. He was happily boating, bathing, reading. I lead the life, he wrote, he wrote of Tina Nog here. The reference one any self-respecting Celticist would know was to perhaps the most famous legend in the whole Irish canon. Part of the mental landscape of any Irishman even lightly attuned to his culture. It told of a mythical place beyond any map located on an island far to the west that could be reached only through an arduous voyage or by invitation of one of its ferry residents. It was a place without sickness or death, full of music, food, drink, and pleasures of every sort, of tireless strength, unending bliss, life lived to the full. It was the land of the young. Listen to its music, Flower exhorted his readers in a poem, Tirnanog, that appeared in a slim volume published the year he visited the island. And you shall hear it, and this is the, the verse, and you shall hear it chanting in one triumphant chime of the life that lives forever and the fugitives of time beyond the Greenland's border and the washing wastes of sea in the world beyond the world's end where nothing is but glee. The magic waters gird it, and skies of laughing blue keep always faith with summer, and summer still is true. There is no end of dancing and sweet, unceasing song, and eyes to eyes make answer, and love with love grows strong. Now, I remember I told you that the working title was Land of the Young. Turns out that my editor, I like the title The Land of the Young, my editor liked the title, The Land of the Young, but her colleagues at the publishing house at Knopf didn't like The Land of the Young. And why did they not like it? Because they were fearful that, the, that employees, uh, inexperienced employees of bookshops might misshelve it and put it in the, um, uh, what do you call it? No, not, not, the, not the juveniles, the self-help section. Put it in the self-help help section. You want to get to be young? Land of the young. Okay, that's the way. That wouldn't take place in this library, for sure. So during the, the years that the, the book plays out from 1905 to 1950. The island village was losing inhabitants. They were moving to the, the mainland. They were moving to America. They were moving in droves. There was no economy. There was no industry, certainly. Many of them left for Springfield, Massachusetts. They, like a lot of immigrants, they, they flocked to one particular location that drew the first ones and then drew, drew them more. 
the while the island economy was sputtering to a ruin, to ruin America was strong. There was industry. You could walk off the the ships and get a job. Uh, the island, the people who left the island might later say how much they loved the island, um, but they left anyway. And finally, in the wake of a tragedy that left an islander um, who got sick on the island, they couldn't care for him on the island, they couldn't get across Blasket Sound to the mainland to get him treated. For three weeks, he languished, and he died finally of, of meningitis. Uh, and finally, they by um, it had been declining as it is, but at that point, the Irish government stepped in and, and ordered the abandonment of the language of the of the village. So the island village today is in ruins. The modern world has won. The traditional world has lost. Um, and yet, I think we have something to learn from this traditional world of the island. You might ask yourself, uh, is there anything missing from our lives today that we might find in that of a Blasket Island fisherman? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'd be happy to uh, take questions as long as my back uh, can hold out. I think after that they made everybody leave the island. Well, it was it was falling apart as it is. Uh, if you look at the statistics, uh, and they actually have these statistics, for years the population was relatively constant at about 125 to 200. And after World War One, which when it was at its height, it's it just dropped down. So, and the Blaskets, as in the rest of Ireland, people were emigrating. There, uh, Ireland had a population of something like eight million at the beginning of the uh, 19th century, and by the time this book takes place, it was down to three and a half million to four million. No, on Blaskets. Oh. Uh, I think at the time they finally, that, that's actually a good question, uh, at the time that they finally ordered the abandonment, made it compulsory, I think it was down to about 35. And there was nothing left in the school either. And what happened is the, the women more unfailingly than the men left, and the men were stuck and there are no wives. And so uh, it was at that point pretty well doomed. Um, you mentioned there were no priests. There was. Uh, there uh, often, when the weather was okay, they would go across to the mainland for services. Once a year, a priest came onto the island, and they sort of reversed things. The islanders were viewed a certain way, and by the frequency with which they appealed to Mary and, and Jesus, were religious uh, mostly. But there's sort of a big if around that religiousness uh, because they lived on an island and islands are traditionally a little looser, a little freer, and there's nobody breathing down your neck. So um, the exact nature of the spirituality and religion of the islanders, you'd really need to 
bore into their hearts and minds individually to really understand, and I'm certainly not in a position to do that. But the practice of religion was less than on the mainland. I think inevitably, because they, it was hard to get to church. And if it, was bad, if it was bad weather, you just couldn't go. And it didn't take much for it to be bad weather. How long did it take them to get to the mainland? I think about an hour, an hour and a half of guys, you know, rowing. Okay. Even today, tourists get there as follows. They get into a motorized small boat. Um, and then when they get within sight of the island, about 50 yards away, because it's so rocky and the, the way into the island is so intricate and difficult, you have to transfer to a little boat, a little dinghy, which is also motorized. And even in summer when we were there, much of the time there would be an announcement that, sorry, we're not going out there today. Even in these motorized boats, you couldn't get over there. It's, pretty, it's a pretty treacherous stretch of water. Uh, during the period covered by the book, there, was, there were attempts and uh, some people were trying to create or find utopias. Did any of the visitors think that that's what they had found on the island? I have to answer that in a, in a double way. Um, yes, in the sense, in the very narrow, limited sense in which I described it. Namely that when they were there, it felt a kind of like a land of the young where all their cares that they had back in Oslo or Paris or London were behind them. And they could just enjoy these spirited men and women for what they were and sometimes participate in the life there and go to the dances. And so that it was a kind of almost a personal utopia. But in, if you asked them, had they found a utopia, they would have said, no, these were seasoned intellects. They were, they were clear-sighted. They were smart people. And they could see in the actual lives of the islanders that this was no real utopia it may have functioned that way in this narrow sense that i described for them but not in any larger sense um yeah, i have a question i don't know if anyone else is thinking so it seems like it took a period of time maybe about 40 years in the time of maybe people as much as you say time before there was a definite decline and then finally extinction, as you're calling this. Um, was there any, like, anthropologist that came in, you know, and, and it sounds like it was sort of a unique, like, subculture, a very unique one that was uh, admired and utilized and practically discarded. I mean, I've never been very myself, but actually brought me here. But I guess in our modern times, it's like Avatar some people have raised the question did the arrival of the villages the visitors themselves contribute in any way to the decay of the island i don't think so or if they did but because they had the effect of bringing tourists not many tourists, but a few tourists to the island, and that had the effect of watering down slightly 
the the village the village culture but there were so many larger forces that were buffeting the island economically that were making life very difficult for them that i don't think we could say uh, that the visitors contributed to that. As to whether any of them were um, formal anth- were anthropologists, the answer would be no, not in a formal sense. However, uh, several of them were um, folklorists, people whose, excuse me, this was a culture that lived by storytelling, lived by resurrecting old stories, by singing old songs. And the folklorists who were um, let me step back for a minute. After I visited the Velasquez Island in 1905, uh, I wasn't sure that I wanted to write a book about the Blaskets, Um, but I read another book on a completely different subject called um, Wrapped in Rainbows, which is a biography of Zora Neale Hurston, the, the novelist. And Zora Neale Hurston at one point was in an anthropology program at Columbia University, and part of her job was to go down into the black rural South and collect songs and stories. And when I read, and this was taking place around the time of the 1920s, 1920s and 30s, I'm not sure, I think the 20s. Um, and when I read this, everything sort of clicked, man. You know, like here was Zora Neale Hurston going into the black rural South, and here were these folklorists in Ireland descending on the great Blasket to try to, res- to, to, to try to find these stories and little hints of this life before it was gone forever. That's what was happening. That was an, there was an awareness at that time that these v- traditional village cultures were disappearing that the modern world was striking them down one after the other, and that there was something getting lost that way. And both Zira Neil Hurston and the people who were interested in the folklore of the island were together trying to hold on to some little piece of that vanishing culture. Yeah, just so we're actually one playing Zira Neil Hurston before. And she actually mentioned something about that that was a little bit... Uh, Difference where she was told by her professor, and she went to, to go down to Harlem in order to measure the uh, premium size of people, random people that she could find because there was sort of a theory about the size of uh, someone's head and potentially their intellect. A pretty corrupt science. Yes. Pseudoscience. <laughs> so she would ask them, please keep your hats off because I'm <laughs> I want to make it as big as possible. I hadn't heard that story. That's cute. That's cute. How did the settlement of the island come about? It's a little bit enshrouded in the mists of history. Uh, the time is a little bit more certain that it was the late 18th century and early 20th century. And there seems to have been uh, an uptick at the time of the famine where people were not doing well on the mainland and they somehow thought, and why that would be is a little bit beyond me, that on the island they would find um, um, more food or, um, you know, they'd have a better chance at life. The If you look at the names of the people on the island, there aren't many. There aren't many last names. There are about seven or eight or ten last names, Carney and Kane and uh, Sullivan. And they most of them probably came from a few families who came around that time. But exactly what drew them in the first place, I can't say. There were ancient 
There may have been ancient people there. There are signs, there are archaeological evidence of some ancient people, but I don't think there's a continuity between those ancient peoples and the people who lived on the Blasket at that time. Are there any accounts of the islanders' view of the outside world once they were forced to leave the island, for example, Springfield, Massachusetts? So it sounds like there's a lot of documentation of visitors' view of the islanders on the island, but what about the islanders' view of where the visitors had come from, that being kind of generally modern? Uh, I think that's, in a way, for me, has been and remains the most interesting thing about this about this whole story. That we, we're used to thinking of ourselves, we think, oh, I think that, or I think that, and we have our opinions with a capital, what's, oh. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that's so interesting about this story is that people, the islanders, the who left the island had a kind of double feeling that they both loved the lives that they had led on the island and felt constrained to leave and appreciated the modern lives that they stepped into in Springfield or Western Massachusetts and so on. They built good lives for themselves. They had all the, they, they lived just like us now. They had all the comforts of home. They lived in, you know, they, first they lived in the, sort of the base of Springfield, then they moved up the hill. I think it was called Hungry Hill. Um, they, um, they want, they're like us. They wanted the things that we have. And at the same time, they could look back to their time. And they said this again and again and again. It was a hard life, but I was happy there. Oh, I was so happy. So what do you do with that? What do you do with this sort of double hit. And I don't think it's necessary that we resolve it. I think that we need to think about it, that the lives that we lead may be pretty good, but maybe there is something lost. And as I concluded my talk, maybe there's something to be gained from thinking about their lives back on the island. All right. Thank you very much, everybody.